When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, we're exploring the state of mind of when we're feeling a little bit neither here nor there. We've all been there, that headspace, when we know something's missing, but we can't quite say what. Many might simply term it feeling a bit meh. Well, there is a better name for that state of mind, and it's been written about in detail by the sociologist Dr. Corey Keyes. He calls it languishing, which is the subject of his new book. Throughout Corey's influential career, he's advised organizations such as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, various global government agencies, and the World Happiness Forum. Let's hear more from our host for this discussion, Sophie McBain. Sophie is contributing editor at the New Statesman magazine and writes about books and ideas for The Guardian and The Sunday Times. Corey Keyes is a sociologist and a professor at Emory University in Georgia who studies positive well-being, how humans thrive and flourish. He coined the term languishing to describe the opposite of flourishing. When you're languishing, you may not be mentally ill, but you're probably feeling low, directionless or undervalued. You might feel disconnected from others and like your life lacks meaning and purpose. He's recently published a book titled Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World that Wears Us Down, outlining his life's research into the components of a well-lived life and offering tips for how all of us can nudge ourselves closer to flourishing. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Corey. Thank you for having me, Sophie. To begin with, I wondered if you could please explain a bit more about what languishing is, because we need to be quite clear, don't we, that we're not talking about depression or anxiety or any kind of mental illness. No. Um, and in fact, in the measurement of languishing and flourishing, there's only one question that is in common with the way psychiatrists diagnose depression, and that's the question about interest in life. The rest is almost diametrically opposed, where depression is about the presence of negative symptoms. Languishing is the absence of what I would call positive symptoms or well-being. And I would describe languishing as being mentally unhealthy. And in the same way that when you are, I would say, practicing or actually engaging in physically unhealthy behaviors, you become physically ill if you practice those physically unhealthy habits too long. Languishing is a state of being mentally unhealthy that if you stay there too long, you often slide into mental illness. So another way to put it is it's the absence of good mental health. People you speak to who are languishing, what's the kind of language they're using to describe where they're at when they're, when they're languishing? Well, when they talk about it, um, 
sometimes they will talk about feeling dead inside or dying inside. And I read about that in the book. That is often associated with what I describe and other scholars describe as demoralization. When you're living a life where you're not living your values. Another way people talk about it is they feel lost, like a lost soul. That's a, a common phrase. And of course, people often talk about feeling empty. And the emptiness comes from the fact that they don't feel much of a positive set of positive emotions. They don't feel really anything good, but they don't feel anything really bad or negative. It's neither. So they're kind of numb. And that's another description that they often will use. I think Adam Grant, who um, who wrote about your research in this New York Times article, he sort of summed it up as when you feel kind of meh, like, mm. ugh, that kind yes. of flatness. Yes. And while I understand, I think we we like to reduce things down to one word. I think other another term uh, is blah, blah or meh. But I, I really don't think that does it justice because I think people will think of those two terms and just think, well, I've been a exposed to three or four rainy days. It's been cloudy and, and yada, yada, right? It's nothing like that. Um, when you're languishing, there's actually a formal diagnosis. And to languish, you have to have the absence of six or more of the signs of functioning well. Like you don't feel much purpose in your life, like your life has direction or meaning. You don't feel you, have a, you belong to a community. You don't feel integrated. You don't feel that you have warm and trusting relationships. I'm just giving you examples. You might feel that you don't have a lot to contribute to the world or your community. You lack confidence that they can express your ideas and you're not being challenged to grow as a person. And on top of that, you don't feel either happy, satisfied, or interested in life. And it's that constellation of things that's a deficit that where you pass that threshold it seems to really classify people into a category where they are simply not doing well in life. And your research on languishing really seemed to strike a chord during the pandemic and in the kind of aftermath of the crisis. I wondered why you thought that might be. Yeah. Well, before I get specifically to your question, it was there before the pandemic. And in, in a way, I... That was quite profound because we were seeing languishing at some levels of 40 to 50 percent of some groups before the pandemic. And I think it became a global phenomenon during the pandemic because COVID was a great equalizer. And by that, I mean, it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, educated or not, lived in a so-called developed country or less developed or wealthy or poorer country. COVID didn't discriminate. Uh, and when the lockdown happened, it happened for almost all of us. And when we were quarantined, uh, it was literally like our arteries into our life outside were, were cut. And so everything that we took for granted that for some people that was feeding their flourishing, they were it was taken from them. But I think it, it represents an opportunity. I think people who usually didn't experience languishing, that was people who tend to be at the higher levels of the SES, were suddenly experiencing what a lot of people ordinarily experience, which is um, that things 
that would contribute to their flourishing are being taken away from them, especially without their permission. And that's life for a lot of people. And my hope is as we've returned back to so-called normal or something close to normal, that people with privilege, power, and opportunity to help change this and make a difference and move the needle towards addressing language, don't forget what it's like and help make this a movement so that we can begin to promote flourishing and prevent languishing and all of the other things that come from languishing. Yeah, and actually, I guess, sort of interesting in the book, there are people from very different walks of life who you find languishing. So it could be the college student who just doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. He's missing his lectures. He's kind of engaging in various risk-taking behavior. It could be the doctor who feels completely ground down by trying to do their job in impossible circumstances. Or it could be a stay-at-home mother who has got all their material needs catered for, but still feels that something's lacking. Indeed. In fact, I remember coming across some research by some Spanish colleagues where they were the first to pioneer this idea of postpartum languishing. And I think that's a really important direction for research because I I think we, we know postpartum depression, but postpartum languishing is far more common and it's associated with a, a deficit in maternal confidence. It's strongly linked, even more strongly than postpartum depression. And when mothers are languishing postpartum, I mean, to lack that kind of confidence, to be a good mother, is, a, is must be very, very difficult. And so it's amazing to me where it shows up. It seems to be everywhere. So does that make you feel that we are looking at the whole problem of mental health in the wrong way because we look a lot at postpartum depression and we count mental health diagnoses and we agonize over how to treat people who are mentally unwell and all of those things are good things to do but should we be broadening our perspective and looking at these people who are not ill but they're also not well they're on this and they might be very at risk of receiving a diagnosis down the line oh without a doubt in fact one of my passions in doing this research was to try to think of a a different way to go about dealing with the crisis of mental illness and we have to admit i think I keep reading, and I suspect you do in the UK. Here in the States, I read articles again and again that the crisis of mental illness keeps growing. And now it's it's really affecting our, our high school students. And just to give you an example of our approach, because I think we're stuck. We keep doing the same thing and thinking we're going, it, things will get different. So there's not enough people to treat all of our teenagers. And so the article was about um, trying to encourage more people to go into this profession to get the skills necessary to treat more of our teens with mental illness. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, don't, and I'm not saying that's, that's not necessary, but that seems to be what we do. And we think we're going to make progress by providing more treatment for more, for growing need. And my approach is let's promote good mental health because it prevents a lot of things like depression and anxiety. 
And so if we could be treating um, or responding, let me use a better word, we could be responding to a slippery slope, which is as you move away from, from good mental health, which I call flourishing, and you start to languish, the more severely you languish, the greater your risk of becoming mentally ill, among other things. And so if we responded to the earliest losses of good mental health, we could, I'm convinced, prevent more of the mental illness that's, right, we're, we're lamenting, we can't, there's just too much of it. And so I'm convinced we cannot make a difference in the world with the crisis of mental illness if we don't deal with the absence of mental health and the loss of good mental health. I suppose positive psychologists have traditionally focused on looking at the components of good mental health, but you feel that quite a lot of them are too, fo that their focus is too narrow. They're too narrowly focused on feeling good, yes. positive feelings. And I wondered if you could explain what is wrong with that. What is wrong with the idea of we should be trying to make ourselves happier? Hmm. In one respect, I could could describe my book as, I'm not interested in whether you're happy. We, we've written, there's been enough books on happiness and the feeling good. And let, I have to be honest, I don't think positive psychology really cared for the first 20 years about mental health. And they focused on feeling good or character strengths. And there's still, you know, there's a place for that. I Don't get me wrong. But I have evidence that I review in the book um, that shows that if all you do is promote happiness without focusing on the signs of functioning well, you do not get the benefits that I talk about when it goes to flourishing. So, for instance, I did publish this. I write about it in the book. But in one study, I took all of the 14 questions that I used to measure the presence and absence of good mental health. And then I asked every young student, college student, how important is that particular facet to you and your life? So, for instance, the question about happiness, right? So how important is that to you in your future life? The questions about, say, purpose, how important is that? Or social well-being, how important is it that you contribute things of worth and value? And it was clear that the feeling good stuff was in first place. It got the gold medal. The psychological well-being fell in second place. Things like acceptance of yourself, purpose, warm, trusting relationships. And social well-being was ranked the least important. Belonging, contribution, making sense of the world, and accepting other people. It was clear our young people in the States, and I suspect they're not different from the young people in your country, that they really think the feeling good stuff is far more important than functioning well. And here's the problem. 22% of college students meet the criteria for flourishing in terms of happiness or feeling good, but they're languishing in terms of functioning well. They have three times the rate of mental illnesses like depression, also much higher rates of suicidality than the young people who put the combination of functioning well and feeling good together, which means they're flourishing. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of almost something old-fashioned about going against the culture culture nowadays in terms of thinking about things like meaning and purpose. Like if you're listening to kind of most self-help guides or podcasts, it is much more on how can you feel happier and feel better and less about 
What are you giving to the community? How do you want to make a difference in the world? I think it's because we seem to want really quick fixes. And we want these kinds of fixes that we can fit in our busy life. We want to do it within 10 minutes, right? So we want to sit down and practice gratitude. We want to sit down and practice a little mindfulness. We want to sit down and engage in some hopeful thinking. Again, nothing wrong with that. But I don't believe that that's the way in which you're going to get meaning in life. Meaning in life doesn't come from sitting um, alone, doing a little change of thought. It comes from engaging in the world and your community and with other human beings. And so I, I, I could go on. There's even more research that shows that just feeling good is simply not enough. I showed that when, when I did the study on mortality, um, right, it flourishing prevents premature mortality. But when you take the pieces apart, the functioning well and the feeling good, it wasn't the feeling good stuff. It was the functioning well, especially psychological well-being. People had higher levels of psychological well-being at all ages. Male or female were less likely to die prematurely. Feeling good had nothing to do with it. But it did if I only looked. If I only looked at the feeling good, yes. But as soon as I brought functioning well in it, it wiped out the feeling good stuff. And I also talk about this in terms of the, that conserved transcriptional response to adversity, which is a set of genes that get activated when we experience high demands and adversity, which aren't good because it increases inflammation and it decreases antibody production. The feeling good stuff has nothing to do. It doesn't modulate the CTRA at all. But having high levels of functioning well, psychological and social well-being, um, dampens the CTRA when we are experiencing adversity. It prevents it from being turned on too, too much. I could go on. I Frankly, I'm, I'm tired of people saying, let's, let's talk about positive emotions. It's, it's the antidote to everything. My argument is, when you feel good and it's not tethered to meaning and mattering and belonging and acceptance. It's like eating a diet of Cheetos or junk food. It makes you feel good, but it's not nutritious. It lacks substance. And I hate to sound judgmental in this regard, but I think we can find a lot of ways to feel good that has nothing to do with doing well or being good, right? There are simply too many quick fixes in this world. And I don't think flourishing is about quick fixes. So I also wanted to ask you a bit about your own life story, because I know you have a very unusual background for someone who has had the career that you've had. And you write in the book, I've spent an entire lifetime trying to forget that to most people I was considered trash. Um, I wondered how you felt your early experiences have shaped how you came into the field, how you thought about what flourishing is, and if that's maybe how you've developed this perspective that feels quite different from how a lot of people talk about mental health and mental illness. Yeah. Well, it, it, in one respect, it gave me what I would call a fierce determination to show that there was good in the world and that I had something to contribute. And then people like me not only belonged, but also had gifts to give to the world. It was almost like I'd talk about it having a chip on my shoulder, 
that um, when the world is sending you the message that you don't belong or you're not good enough, uh, it it would motivate me even more to show them they were they were wrong. I didn't say I was. I was going to go prove that that them wrong. And I also thought that this sole focus in our scholarship on mental illness didn't characterize the human condition and the nuances of life well enough. And I experienced two versions of childhood. Um, the first version up to the age of 11 was nothing short of hell. And I experienced a lot of violence and abuse. And suddenly I was transplanted and thankfully um, adopted by my grandparents into a very different home. And suddenly the, the absence of the, I had, the negative was gone. There was the absence of the negative, but I didn't suddenly get catapulted into mental health. I, I spent a good amount of my early life in and out of languishing. And I talk about that experience of when I would let down all the activity that I was doing and how I was doing well in school and very active, all of a sudden this fog, this emptiness, this void would sort of come to the foreground. And so suddenly, just because I was free of all the negative didn't mean I was, I was flourishing. I had a wonderful environment and I tasted it. And, and that's where the seeds, as I say in my dedication, my grandparents gave me the seeds of flourishing. That's where it was sown. But I knew the absence of the negative didn't mean the presence of the positive. And that's my personal story was then um, a lifelong journey of not only the scholarship of trying to see what would good mental health really look like and what was this condition called languishing, but it was a very personal search for my own answers to the fact that there had to be something more to life than just the absence of the negative. Did you have a, a sense of how it was that you were able to even get to that point? Because the things that you experienced in the first decade of your life would have broken so many people that even being transplanted to to your loving grandparents' home mm -hmm. is often, that's not enough. Yeah, I, I won't pretend to know that some of these mysteries of why um, I, I really don't know where that fierceness came from. I just knew it was there and that I was determined that what had happened to me and my sister would not define our life. That that, what was taken from us, the, the people we could have become in a loving environment was not going to be the last word on our journey. And it suffice it to say, I'm still working on healing um, the damage uh, from that. Um, in fact, every Thursday to this afternoon, I will go visit my trauma therapist. Um, and, and it's a lifelong journey that I think many of us who experience severe trauma have to undergo. But the way I describe it is for most of my life, I was black and blue and, and literally and figuratively and very sensitive to the touch. And until I faced down my past, 
and tried to heal because I thought I could outrun it, Sophie. I that I could out-success my past. I wouldn't have to deal with it. But it caught up with me, and it was always in my rearview mirror. So once I dealt with it, uh, the black and blue went away, and it's not as sensitive to the touch anymore. And, and I talk about that because if for those of you who have deep pain from your past and you want to flourish, what I've found is that you can't ignore the pain of the past because you carry it with you and it will derail you on your journey to flourishing as it did to me many times. And now that I'm healing and I spend a lot more time in that place called flourishing. Wow. I imagine it has um, given you a huge amount of empathy as well when you're speaking to other people mm. who are either trying to outrun difficult paths or, yes. or still grappling with multiple traumas? Oh, undoubtedly. And um, the way I end the book um, is, is deeply personal. And it's a call. It's a, a call out to all of those people who, who are, are like me, have, have been broken but aren't defeated, Right. I think most of us have some brokenness in our life. And often I think about what, what the Japanese do. This It's called kintsugi. I think I got the right word. But, but what they do is with valuable belongings that break, they put them together with precious metals that show the cracks, right? But they put them together in ways that honor the brokenness and display to the world that you can still be useful and seen and tell your story. And I want more people who feel like they've, or like me at times, a lost soul, to come with me and find our way home. That's why I describe flourishing as the North Star for me. It always guides me back to where I need to be because it keeps me in recovery. In this book, you outline what you call the five vitamins of flourishing, which are the steps that people can perhaps try and take daily to bring themselves out of languishing or closer to flourishing, wherever they are on this, this spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if we could talk about them all. And that the first is the importance of following your curiosity, learning something new. And I wondered, what kinds of things do you mean by that? And, and how does that help people? Most of, of learning in many of our societies is so concentrated at the beginning of life that it's all about preparing you for being useful in the workaday world. And I understand the need for that, and I realize its importance. But it it encourages us, I think, to see learning as something that we don't choose to do, but we have to do. And I can't tell you how many times as a college professor I heard from my college students something that was rather sad. They had no choice, that they were at college because they had to be here, there. And they didn't seem like they really wanted to be there necessarily, or the timing wasn't right. It was just something they, they were being forced to do it. 
And I remember going to college, I didn't feel forced at all. I felt like, wow, this is a wonderful choice. I can't believe I get to do this. And I think the idea is that as an adult, we don't learn something just because we want to learn it and that it, right? Or because it, it's not something we want to use in the marketplace, but we just want to become good at doing it. And it's, it's a remarkable thing to just choose to learn something because you want to and because you want to grow and become better at doing it. And it's not because you want to showcase it for the world or use it in the work workplace. It, it's good if you do, if you want to, but just for the sake of growing. And I love the idea of learning throughout adulthood because I think of human beings, it's just like, we're just like anything else that's been planted on this earth. We're here to grow. And when we're not, and when we're languishing, Oh, it, I know what that feels like. It, it, indeed, as I said earlier, it's like you're feeling like you're dying inside and you're stuck and stagnant. And learning just for the sake of becoming a better person or getting better at something is the epitome of, or the, not the epitome, but it is an, the example of what plants do that we can't do. Plants photosynthesize. We, we learn and we do the equivalent of photosynthesis and take in what the world has for us. And what we give back is this idea of, and this feeling of mastery and growth. And then the second one is building warm and trusting relationships. And I wondered if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling alienated, how do you start to do that? How do you start to create the relationships that you want in your life? Well, I was just reading a, a report by a consulting firm. I think it's global, so it's probably in the UK, called Deloitte. And they do a lot of workplace surveys. And this one was in the UK, US, Canada, and Australia. And what was surprising, what stood out to me, is that almost 50% of workers in those four countries say they don't have enough time for family or friends. Because... I'm not saying that's where you're going to, everyone's going to find their warm, trusting relationships. But for many of us, they're right there, but we don't have time for them. And that in and of itself, I think, is one opportunity for reclaiming some of the experience of warmth and trust that's already there waiting for you to connect with. Now, I, you know, I, I know and I understand what it is to be busy. and But I think work takes over our lives. And it's true, especially among people with more education and, and higher so-called status, higher status jobs, because those jobs, on average, people are working 50 or more hours a week on average. So it's like a fire hose, with the water coming out of fire hose. There's more work than time. But the question is, in a situation like that, work will not, never end. So you're going to have to find a way to prioritize those things in your life if you're saying you don't have the time for family and friends. But if, if, if family and friends aren't the place, the um, question is, where can you find them? And I, for example, found them by getting involved in yoga. I practiced yoga for over 25 years. And what was remarkable is that 
going to the studio and practicing um, with with a class, there was, I started to notice, as is typical, there was the same people showing up for these, these particular classes at a certain time and, and day of the week. And before we knew it, uh, we, we were connecting and some of us became friends, very good friends. And these are people that have a sort of similar philosophy and approach to life. And um, what you want to do is sort of go out in the world and to those places where you think you're going to find people who are sort of have the same philosophy of life. That's, I like that word better than just having the same interests. Because it's a great way to connect with people who are on the same journey as you. And I think that's where you most of us are going to find those kinds of quality relationships where, where there's warmth and trust. Do you feel like we're getting less good at building relationships and building friendships? Because I feel like I read lots of pieces about toxic friends and how mm. to unfriend someone. And we talk about investing in friendship like it's a financial asset. Um, <laughs> or people can feel very quickly feel imposed upon. Do we need to get better at that kind of generosity and forgiveness that's required for friendship? Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it would be good to, to take a lesson from um, older adults who, who with age get pickier about who they let into their life and who they spend time with. And they prioritize emotionally warm and trusting relationships and I think most of us in this day and age, because of the workplace and social media, let too many people into our life that really, I don't think we should. And we should be pickier about it. I'll give you an example. I don't spend a lot of time on social media platforms such as Facebook. But when I get a request to a friend, um, or when I seek out a friend, I, I don't just accept anyone. If I don't have a, a good reason to connect with them, I, I don't. I don't accept the friend request. And so for me, the social media isn't about how many friends you have. It's do you have people that you would actually spend time with and want, would want to spend time with? So I think the first task is, I think we just let too many people into our lives that really, if we are honest with ourselves, they don't belong there because they're not good for us and we're not good for them. And we should be pickier about who we spend time with and who we let into our life on social media or even in the workplace. And the third vitamin is move closer to the sacred. And that is something that's easier for people who are already religious. But I wondered what kinds of spiritual practice count. I mean, the UK is a much more secular society even than the US. And we know that Lots of wealthy countries are becoming more and more secular. So what can we do to get that move towards the sacred? Well, I do spend a good bit of time in, on that chapter talking about spirituality. And, um, the, and for me, and I think for other scholars, spirituality is the less formal or less institutionalized. Having said that, a lot of spiritual practices do come from well-formulated spiritual traditions, such as Buddhism, right, which has been around for hundreds of years, of course. But he's, whether you're 
into the institutional or, or the less institutional, the spiritual, what I talk about in that chapter is that almost anything that you believe is a ritual or a practice that's helping you become a better person for the world or for others and become less self-centered or egotistical, right? I think those are can be considered a spiritual, even a religious practice. So I, I write it there. You don't have to be consider yourself a religious person to engage in rituals that were are designed to help you become a better person. Um, shortly after I submitted my book, I was reading, um, my father-in-law sent me a book about stoicism that he's reading. He's 89 years old and he's facing the end of life. And he said, the, these popularized books about the philosophy of stoicism has been helping him become a better person in facing the challenges of aging and, and the end of life because they help him engage in practices that help him think about life and where he can control things and what he can't control. And so you could even be uh, practicing a spiritual-like ritual by practicing some forms of ancient philosophy that have been around hundreds of years that are still very popular. And and the one I would recommend is um, picking up a book on Stoicism for everyday life, if you're not religious or even spiritual. I wondered if, because it feels like as countries get wealthier, they become less religious. And so Mm. in, in, we find generally in wealthier countries, people have greater life satisfaction and in poorer countries, people are more likely to Mm -hmm. report greater meaning in their lives. And I wondered whether in these kind of wealthy countries, that desire for spirituality sometimes gets expressed without having, if it doesn't have an outlet, gets expressed in kind of strange ways, like um, kind of celebrity worship or kind of all-encompassing conspiracy theories, things that make us feel part of something bigger or feel like we have some kind of guiding principle, but not is not one that actually is going to help someone become a better person. Hmm. That's an interesting point, Sophie. I, th- I, I think in, 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 de- in these wealthier developed countries, there is this idea that we're encouraged to think that we don't need anything else to help us besides me and maybe my most immediate family. And I've seen this as if you see countries become wealthier, we leave behind the sense that we need each other to get through and get by. And what you see in, in, in countries and among people that are you know, less developed or poor is that the only way they, they get by is to help each other and get through um, say, taking care of each other's children, um, getting things, getting through some difficult times. But as we become wealthier, I think it's not like our need for something to believe in and, and, and our need for ha- putting our faith in something disappears. It just is this sense that somehow religion just doesn't seem like it belongs anymore. Because there's something about this idea of relying on something where you have no proof (laughs) that 
somehow s- doesn't seem to fit in the, this wealthier fabric of life. And frankly, it's not like we're, we don't go out seeking something to believe in. But even these conspiracy theories, I, I wonder sometimes, um, I think people feel like there's more proof and validity there than there is. But you brought up a point that makes me think about what I do. Another thing I talk about in that chapter is I think what spirituality at least did for me and even religion while I was practicing it, um, it made me welcome more mystery into my daily life to sort of think and be in awe and amazed at how this all works. I don't understand how or why. I can't dismiss that there was a creator or not, even as a scientist. But it is, I marvel at just the mysteries of some of the things we couldn't, we can't, still can't figure out. Not even the greatest mind, Stephen Hawking's or Albert Einstein, as I write about, can, can understand that. And who, right? I just think we've lost our sense of mystery and wonder. And for me, that's what spirituality always brings in, the, the idea that um, I can just sit back and say, isn't this amazing? The fourth vitamin is how to have and live your purpose. And I wondered how someone should go about defining their purpose, <laughs> especially in a way that avoids what you describe as purpose anxiety, which is Something I can definitely empathize with this idea that if you sit down and think, what am I here on this planet for? It can send you into this kind of existential spiral of anxiety. Well, in some respects, I, I, I wish I hadn't just described that chapter as only about purpose, because I don't think you need to have that larger purpose to benefit from what is an important ingredient of purpose. And that is committing to some activity where you are helping someone else or another group of people or helping something in this world. In other words, you're you're dedicating a little bit of your time to improving the condition or the well-being or alleviating the suffering or the decline of some, some group or something in this world. That could be the environment or some aspect of the environment. That could be a group of people like, for me, I've been passionate about mental illness because of my own experience, but helping others. And so you could start just by trying to help something or someone. The next level, if you want to take the next step up from just saying, I'm going to at least once a week go out and do something and dedicate a a good amount of time or a little bit of time to helping, you could... Commit yourself to a social role that is volunteering. So you get involved in an organization or, or, or an institution or, or, and commit yourself to doing something regularly around volunteering. Or you can take it to the third, or some might call it the higher level, but it doesn't have to be. And that is that you dedicate a part of your life right, to a cause. And again, you're you're helping someone or something, but you've, you've shifted to this point where I'm dedicating a part of my life to 
a particular cause and I see that I'm my life is part of helping someone or something in this world. And some people might come to believe that's why they were put here. And so um, I don't think you have to jump right to the purpose in life to get the benefit of this vitamin. You could start by helping or you could move to the next level of volunteering. Or if you're ready to see what you do, at least in part of your life, maybe even your work, it's dedicated to a cause, then you might be ready for committing yourself to a purpose in life. Yeah. And I, I wondered if a lot of the reasons why languishing has become a kind of large part of human existence at the moment is for various negative trends. But I wondered whether on purpose people could be languishing for the positive reason that your purpose doesn't have to be defined for you, that not that long ago, simply being a woman meant that your purpose in life might be construed as being a good wife and a good mother. And there'll be much less encouragement to think that you can define your purpose however you want to. Yeah. I think we've, we've made a good deal of progress in that regard where social convention is no longer defining for people ahead of time what their purpose or sole purpose in life might be. And so people do have a lot more opportunity, not everyone, but more opportunity for choosing the way in which they're going to express their desire to help and indeed maybe to be kind. But it's interesting to me, I, I think another element of flourishing and languishing, uh, the presence and absence of, might go into finding purpose or not or even going out and helping others. And that's the sense when I, I ask the question, do you have something important or valuable to contribute to the world? And that's one of the questions that goes into my measurement of flourishing or languishing. When people are languishing, often they, they don't believe that they have anything of value to give the world. And I think a lot of that comes from things like inequality, being low in the social hierarchy, experiencing sexism, racism, or homophobia, you name it. Uh, all these forms, all these isms undermine our sense that we have anything of value to give to the world. And that I think, I think I realize and empathize with because I too, as I talked about, you mentioned this earlier, I had to overcome the messages somehow I I wasn't needed here. I didn't belong. I wasn't wanted. And I had nothing to give. And I was just, you know, trash. And I know what it's like to get that message. You have no value and you don't belong. And I think that's one of the most damaging effects of all the isms and the inequality in our world. Um, to move on to the, the fifth vitamin, it's play. And one thing that you very clear doesn't count as play, which is probably what a lot of people do, is engage in passive leisure. So watching TV or scrolling on the internet. What counts as play and why is it so important? The research was very clear on this active versus passive leisure. And passive leisure is not conducive to promoting well-being and passive leisure is, is sort of, uh, it, it's, it's a reflection of the modern world where we, 
almost all of what we considered our leisure is delivered to us and for us. And you can sit down and consume it. The difference is active leisure is something that you have to, to get up and go out and do and experience and create for yourself. Hiking, biking, you name it, or hobbies or so forth. Um, even reading for some is considered active leisure. And by the way, as I remember one study showing that some people who read experience flow as a result of it. And so that difference between passive and active is very fundamental. And the only way I can reduce it down in simple terms is the passive is that you sit back and it's delivered to you. And I get it. That's, that can be fun and, and, and a great break from the busy world. But if you're doing leisure to encourage well-being and, and, and address languishing, it's the active stuff that's going to help. And play is, I, I wouldn't make a big distinction between play and leisure. I think in the adult world, play is called leisure. But I still like, don't want to reserve the word, the word play for something that you do just for the sake of fun or enjoyment. And I want to include games because a lot of researchers that focus on play in childhood exclude things like games that are already pre-formulated for us and that have competition and outcomes. For adults, games can be, I'm considering that a form of play, especially if the outcome doesn't determine your fun or if the outcome doesn't erase the joy and your memory of the fun you had just because you may have lost. But the point of play is that it takes you out of the commodity of time. We've commodified our time in the modern world where time is money and it has to be useful. And that really gets in the way of play and leisure because some people have the mindset that leisure and play is a waste of time. And so doing it doesn't bring them anything of joy or anything beneficial. Well, thank you so much for talking through your work and being so generous in sharing your life story as well and um, helping explain the components of flourishing. I mean, I feel that doing this interview has given me lots to think about in terms of how to make changes in my life. So thanks so much. You're more than welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Corey Keyes, author of Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World That Wears Us Down, available now from Torva and Transworld, part of Penguin Random House and at a bookstore near you. I've been Sophie McBain. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.